You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Um, I want to let you know, um, especially because of the significance for me, in our 1045 service this morning, we're going to be baptizing. Um, my brother and his family are home for several months from the mission field, and my brother's going to be baptizing my niece. And so I am thrilled and excited about that and uh, looking forward to it. Um, once or twice a year, we come back to this series that we call Foundations, and we hit on things that have to do with our core values, um, the major tenets of what we believe. Uh, well, here we are celebrating our 20th anniversary, and over these weeks of August, um, we are walking through some biblical principles that apply to us as Christ followers and as a church that honestly had everything to do with why this church was started and what the church must be built upon, but just as importantly uh, about if it's going to continue to grow as the Lord desires that we continue to hold to these principles. So um, 2,000 years ago, there was this long-awaited expectation of a Messiah. It had been promised uh, for thousands of years. It had been prophesied, written about. But you get to the end of the Old Testament and the prophet Malachi, and after Malachi comes forward and speaks on behalf of God, God goes silent for 400 years. And you and I, I mean, we've lived most of our lives, all of our lives for that matter, um, without having the prophets. We don't need the prophets because we have God's word. But for 400 years, God stopped speaking to his people. And along with that, um, the squeeze of Rome on Israel kept tightening. And so what began to happen over the course of these 400 years is that for anyone who even still had an expectation of the Messiah, it became about political deliverance. All the people wanted in Israel, all the Jews wanted was for somebody to get rid of Rome. Uh, we want to be free from that. So the expectation began to be way off of the mark, and along with it, the anticipation had long worn off. It had gone from the very, very front of the Jewish mind to the very, very back. But finally, at what the Apostle Paul in later would call in his letter to the Galatians, at just the right time, finally, God sent his son. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you learn that just before God sends his son into the world, he sends the forerunner. He sends John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist comes onto the scene and has this ministry um, where he is essentially um, calling people and saying the Messiah is coming. Um, but he's not coming to deliver you from Rome. He's coming to deliver you from sin and death. And so repent now and be baptized. Prepare yourselves. And you know, people began coming out to where John was and repenting and being baptized. And then finally... Jesus comes. And um, why don't we know really anything about Jesus' life from age 12 to somewhere around 30? 
the only thing I know to tell you is God chose that we didn't need to know. Um, but finally, Jesus comes onto the scene. The first thing that happens to begin his ministry is he's baptized by John the Baptist. And after going through the temptation that he went through in the wilderness, Jesus comes in and the first thing that he does is he puts together, if you will, his team. It's like draft day. But Jesus doesn't draft any of the right players, according to most people. Jesus goes and finds these guys that none of us would have picked or expected. He goes out and picks fishermen. Other rabbis, they're getting all of the guys who are coming up in their studies and they're smart and they've got potential of getting even smarter. Um, just to know that like Peter and Andrew and James and John were back fishing means that there wasn't a rabbi that chose them. But Jesus did. These were guys who most of them had absolutely no status, no wealth. But then in contrast to that, Jesus goes and finds guys like Matthew, who's a tax collector. Matthew most certainly had wealth, um, and he probably had status as well. Um, now that status was everybody knows you and hates you, but that was status nonetheless. So Jesus picks these guys that no one else would have picked. He finds them two at a time, one at a time, and he issues them this call. Come follow me. Peter and Andrew, put down your nets, leave the fishing behind, come follow me. Matthew, leave this tax collecting behind, come follow me. And they did. And then as Jesus preached and he taught and he healed and he worked, more people came and more people came. And the more people that came, the more people that walked away. Why? Well, because Jesus said, come follow me. And then he began to say, and if you choose to follow me, if you want to follow me, here's what it's going to mean. Here's what it's going to cost you. This morning, we're going to look at the mandate on the life of every believer in Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. And we're just going to begin in Luke before we launch out here. In Luke chapter 9, let's go back to this calling that kept being repeated by Jesus. In Luke 9, um, Jesus has already been um, teaching. He's been doing miracles. He has sent the 12 apostles out on mission. They've returned. He's fed 5,000 men, like 15,000 people with five loaves, two fishes. Well, you get to Luke 9, 23, and there's most likely an enormous crowd around Jesus. And he says to all of them, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever yields and surrenders and lays down their life so that they can come after me, you ultimately will be holding on to life. Turn a couple pages over into Luke 14. 
In Luke 14, 27, Jesus reiterates this again when he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When you walk through the gospels, Jesus is slowly revealing the depth of the cost of following him. Why does he do this? Well, because see, you and I in our flesh cannot follow Jesus. Self cannot and will not yield, submit, surrender. We, we can't do it on our own. However, taking up one's cross, what this means is this results in death and in newness of life. See, when Caroline is baptized in the next service, this is the representation that we have of understanding that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and raised to life again, and that you and I, having faith in him, we are understanding our spiritual depravity, poverty, that we are spiritually dead without him, and that we are laying our lives down, going into the grave, and that through Christ we are coming up into new life. That's the gospel. That's baptism. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you'll take up your cross and follow me, then you'll have life. This is the call Jesus issued then and that he still extends today. Come take up your cross and follow me. Friends, the mandate of every believer is to follow The mandate on the life of anyone and everyone who says, I believe in Jesus, is to then follow after Jesus. But here's the thing. Not everyone who believes will follow. Miles Stanford, in his book, The Complete Green Letters, he says this, Every believer is freed from all bondage, but every believer is not aware of this liberating truth. Sad to say, the only believers who are interested in freedom are those who have come to the place of hating instead of hugging their chains. Um, It doesn't make a lot of sense to anyone in the flesh that you actually have to understand and accept the bad news before you will even desire to receive the good news. You and I have to understand and know and believe that we are dead in our sin before we'll have any desire to be raised to life in Christ. But Jesus says, come follow me. If we choose to follow, Jesus says, come. Well, then Jesus says, go. Go. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, um, Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead, appeared to hundreds of his disciples. He's been with them for about 40 days, and he is about to go back to the Father. And he tells his disciples, the apostles, come and meet me at the mountain. And they do. And look in verse 18. Jesus meets them there, and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of the power and the authority, 
in all of creation, over all of creation, all authority in existence is mine. It belongs to me and I am giving it to you. We go under the authority of Jesus's power. Verse 19, Jesus says, all the authority is mine. Now go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, because I am the creator, the sustainer, I am the word, I am the redeemer, I am the savior, because I am... I am now giving you the authority to go and make disciples. Jesus is saying to his men, there's 11 of the 12 still there. And he says, go and make disciples. Go and lead others to follow me. Go and show those who are trusting empty, false gods that there is only one true God. And he is not some created being. In fact, he is the creator. Go and speak and declare the good news that there is hope for those who are still wallowing in the slavery of their sin. There's hope. There's freedom Go and testify that you yourselves were once lost, you were in slavery, you were dead in your sin, but you have now been found freed and raised to new life. Go and proclaim all of these things. The mandate of every believer is to follow. The mandate of every follower is to make disciples. The mandate on the life of every follower of Jesus Christ is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, go. As you go, as you are walking through your daily life, lead people to me. Make disciples of me. You and I need to be released of the burden of thinking that we need to make disciples of us. That would do no good for that person, or for the rest of the world. But we are to point and lead others to Christ, baptizing them, teaching them. And then Jesus says, but don't you dare forget as you go and do this. Look back at verse 20. I am with you always. Let that sink in for a moment. Because see, I think that we read that like I'm accessible always. Hey, if you realize in the middle of the day you need me, I'm available. Or I'm around. You could get me by phone. Maybe contrary to like the rest of us, Jesus will answer. Um, It's not what he's saying. I'm with you. You remember how David declared about my father in the Psalms, there's nowhere I can go from his presence. 
I can't go too far down. I can't go too far up. I can't hide. I can't get away. I'm with you always to the end. We go under the authority of Christ's power. Well, friends, we go with the peace of his presence. Jesus says, I'm with you always, everywhere, to the end. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, friends, if the promise is to the end of the age, then so is the command. See, if Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age, then you and I are to go and make disciples always, even to the end, until Christ returns for his church. We are to be making disciples. I'm going to repeat this a few times this morning because it needs to soak in. The mandate of every believer in Jesus Christ is to follow after Jesus Christ. The mandate of every follower of Jesus Christ is to lead others to follow Jesus Christ. And this is not like some hidden buried information. You know, like Lee was saying as we were worshiping together this morning, God has not hidden himself from us. He has openly revealed these things. But so when you understand this very, very simple, plain, the biblical truth of who we are and what we're called to do, it makes you scratch your head and wonder how and why so many churches today are filled with so many more churchgoers and so few disciple makers. How can that be possible? I'm going to jump ahead to a note in my sermon here because I think it just fits right here. I think our problem is, and let me pop out two big theologically sounding words here that we really, really need to know and understand. The problem is, is that our Christology is driven by our ecclesiology. Now here, here's what we mean. Your ecclesiology is your understanding of who and what the church is. Our Christology is the understanding of who Christ is. We often get it backwards. Well, this is how we do church. So let's figure out how to fit Jesus into that. Doesn't work that way. Anything and everything that we do as a church and as Christ's followers has got to be driven by who Jesus is and what he said and what he did. And we get it backwards sometimes. But I, I want to say to you this morning, as I've reflected on this for a few weeks, I think that often we fail to make disciples because we forget that Jesus is with us always. On the one hand, we forget it for the accountability purpose. You know, if you teach your child to do something and you're there with them, it's a lot higher likelihood that they're going to do it than if maybe you just kind of leave them off to their own. Sometimes it's like we think, ah, maybe Jesus isn't watching. Sure he's watching. He sent the Spirit to fill us and to send us. We forget and so we, we 
negate the accountability, but I think we also forget, and, and let's just be real honest here, for some weird reason, we wind up just sort of dodging things in fear or apathy. We worry about the favor of man rather than the favor of God. And see, here's the crazy part. I don't need to work for the favor of man. I don't need to make disciples to earn the favor of God. I go and make disciples understanding that I already have the favor of God because of Christ. Again, our ecclesiology has to be birthed from our Christology. This belief that in that situation, in that circumstance, through that trial, on that, in that valley, on that mountaintop, it does not matter wherever I walk, whatever I face, he is with me. Period. But maybe we also miss this because we are not living and walking filled with the Spirit. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. There in Matthew 28, we looked at the Great Commission. I've heard over the course of my life, many people refer to Acts chapter 1 as the other Great Commission. If you take the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the end of the Gospel of Luke, there's no, um, there's no argument, nothing comes in conflict with each other. It's like you can lay them on top of each other and see what Jesus does in those last um, moments that he has with his disciples. Well, Luke stops his gospel, and right where he ends his gospel, he picks up at the beginning of Acts. So Jesus, as we saw in Matthew 28, is gathered with his disciples. Well, look at verse 6, Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's really easy to read what we just read and kind of think to yourself, good Lord have mercy. Disciples, here we are. We're at the very end. Jesus has died on the cross, risen from the dead. He's appeared to you umpteen times now. And here you are still thinking about the earthly kingdom. Lord, when are you going to finally restore Israel? But that's not what's happening here. That's not what's being asked or what's being said. This was not an unreasonable question. And here's why. The Lord, if you read through the Old Testament, has promised multiple times through the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Joel, I am going to restore Israel. So really, um, when you boil it down... These guys are thinking about God's kingdom. What's happening here is they're wondering if Jesus is saying, this is it. Like the end is almost here. They're thinking about the kingdom of God. But they're asking questions that Jesus says, you don't get to know these things. So Jesus, if you'll notice, he doesn't rebuke them. And you and I know, if we've read the Gospels, Jesus is not afraid to rebuke his disciples. 
He doesn't rebuke them here, but he doesn't answer them either, at least not with the answer that they're looking for. He tells them, it's not for you to know these things. Verse 8. But here's what you do need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Friends, we go under the authority of Christ's power. His power is his spirit within us. That is the accessibility, availability that you and I have to God's power. Is that not that we can find it every once in a while if we're maybe looking for it, but that through Christ, his spirit has come to dwell within us. In John 14, 12, Jesus tells the the disciples, I'm getting ready to leave you and here's why. If I don't leave you, then the spirit can't come and you need the spirit and here's why. You've seen me do great things. Well, when the spirit comes upon you, you will do even greater things than these. That's mind blowing that the son of God says to his disciples, You're going to do even greater things than these if you will trust that the Spirit is going to come and dwell within you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So understand the twofold implications of this. Okay, First of all, we cannot and we will not make disciples if we are not being filled by the Spirit of God. You cannot and you will not make disciples unless you are seeking for the Spirit of God to fill you and use you. But now also understand, if you and I want to know if we are being filled and used by the Spirit of Christ then what we need to assess is whether or not we're making disciples of Christ. Does it matter if you and I come here together today and pour out our hearts and worship to God? Absolutely it does. Um, Does it matter that we serve our neighbor, our community, uh, because we, we want to be emptied of ourselves and And give to others. Absolutely it does. But friends, I can come here all day long and lift my hands and I can sing my guts out. And and I can work real hard to be better and more moral and and all of these things. But if I'm not making disciples of Jesus, I'm not following Jesus. And understand, this does not mean that you need to formally lead six other people through a Beth Moore or a John Piper Bible study in your living room. It doesn't mean that. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't do that. But you know what? If you're a parent, um, it definitely means for you um, that days and moments don't slip by where we're not taking the 
awkward, painful sometimes opportunities to teach our children. Yeah, you can't walk that way because that's not how Jesus would walk. We have to take the opportunity to go and repent to other people. When I spoke this way to you, when I did this to you, I wasn't acting as Christ would have led me. I need you to forgive me. It doesn't have to be some big, formal, regimented, systematic thing. But I will tell you this. It's got to be intentional. You and I are not going to get to the end of our week, much less the end of our life, and look back and go, Huh, that's crazy. I was making disciples. Of Jesus, anyway. We're making disciples of something all the time. But if we want to follow Christ and make disciples of him, it will be with great intent. Verse 10. This is, this is the epitome of awesomeness right here. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. So let's boil this down so we make sure we're just all understanding what's happening here. Two angels show up and the disciples are watching, which I would have been right there with them. Are you guys seeing this? And the angels show up and they're probably standing there looking with them. And then they finally say, hey guys, what are you standing around for? Go. Because the same way that you saw Jesus go, he's going to come back. And when he comes back, may he most certainly find you faithful to what he's called you to do. If you believe then follow. And if you're going to follow him, then go and make disciples. Friends, as a church, until the Lord returns, we are committed to teach his word. No compromises. Well, let me say to you this morning that as a church, until Christ returns, the call on our lives is to come and follow him and to go and make disciples. You've heard us say this over and over again, and we will never stop saying this. God saves us to send us. Jesus' call, come follow me. Then Jesus' command, now go and make disciples. Friends, to speak very, very plainly to you this morning, we are not here to grow our church or advance our agenda. We've been called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we're doing that, our church will continue to grow and we will see the kingdom of God come as it is. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your faithfulness. 
Lord, there's probably many of us in this room who we've been following you for years. And Lord, sometimes it's been through seasons of apathy. Sometimes it's been through pain and trial. Um, Sometimes maybe we've run from that and we have rebelled and you've come after us and you've brought us back home. Lord, we ask this morning that you would overwhelm our hearts again with the joy of our salvation. Lord, may we never grow so familiar. May we never get so comfortable that we lose the burning fire and passion of what it means that you have saved us and redeemed us. But Lord, may we also know that regardless of how we feel when we wake up tomorrow, the call is still there. Yes, to come, but also to go. Lord, would you give us the vision to lead others to know you and to walk with you and to follow you. If you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure out what what does this really mean to trust Jesus, to follow him? If, If you'd like to know what it means that Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the dead and he's come to give you new life. This morning, the end of our service, some of our pastors and elders, they'll be up here at the front. They would love to talk with you and pray with you. We've been praying that your life would be eternally changed today. these next moments as we sing a song of declaration of who Christ is and what he has called us to do. I just want to invite you, if you you need to come to the foot of the cross or the steps and pray, please come. Lord, we pray that words we declare to you, but more importantly, the lives we surrender to you would bring you glory and honor because you are worthy. I just want to challenge you and encourage you this morning.
maybe just to pray, Lord Jesus, take my life. It's all yours. Use it for your glory and your kingdom. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.